And welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. Uh, this morning I'm afraid to inform you that I have no co-presenter you stuck with me, but fortunately I'm not alone in the studio. I'm in very good company. And this morning I'm going to be talking to Dr. Diana Jones from Melbourne University. Good morning, Diana. How are you? Good morning, Jaime. Well, thank you. Um, and we're going to jump straight into our first track for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am very pleased to report that this morning all tracks will be um, select. They are se- have been selected by our guest, and the first one is uh, a, a new discovery for me as well. His name is Sampha. It's a bit of a slow start. You can hear us live on 98.9 Northwest FM and streaming online at www.northwestfm.org, northwestfm.org for more information. You can hear folk music, folk news, folk gig guide and spoken word as poetry and yarns every Tuesday on Emu Fox Thistle and Shamrock, 10pm till midnight with David O'Brien on your local station 98.9 Northwest FM or streaming on northwestfm.org. My motto, stories equals songs, songs equals stories. Folk from Australia and all over the world. All right, it is six minutes past nine and the show is Mad Village. The station is Northwest FM, just in case you got to the wrong station. (laughs) And the song you just heard is No One Knows Me Like a Piano by Sampha. And Diana, maybe just start with that. Why did you choose that song? I chose that song because of the theme of um, home and belonging and sense of connection and identity, and which for if we're talking about young people and young people involved in the justice system, I think is uh, kind of is that what we're talking about today? We're just talking about music, <laughs> and I love it. Sampa's one of my current favourites. Great. So, um, talking about belonging and identity mm. it's a it's actually a good segue for where we wanted to start the interview today which is um to learn a little bit about you and what perhaps what led you to to a career in criminology if that's what you did because some mm. of us didn't do that necessarily. <laughs> yes <laughs> yes i found myself in a career in criminology i um always wanted to study criminology as a young person and it took me a while to get there. Um, I did, um, when I left school, I started in that direction, but then sort of decided I needed to go out and explore the world a little bit more. So it took me a while, it took me a few years to come back to study. And then I did a degree in criminal justice and then a master's researching um, young people going through restorative justice conferencing. So young people who defended and then um, come together with the person they defended against with their supportive others, whoever they were. And I looked at that process from the perspective of young people and their supports, family or whoever it was. So right before we go into that, so where did you grow up? I grew up in Melbourne. Um, But I did spend time living in the US and the UK. 
I started school in England and came back to school in um, primary school with a sense of being um, slightly an outsider, I suppose. So I think that experience might have shaped my um, sense of, um, I don't know, identifying with people who were maybe living on the outside, on the margins a bit. <clears throat> and um, also a sense of privilege that I had growing up in, um, you know, with education, with a solid family, um, and the sense, the realisation that not everybody had that and not everybody had the chance to travel the world and live either. So I started my life then with that sense of sort of social justice embedded in me um, and also a bit of a desire, an interest in mysteries and, you know, discovery. <laughs> so that all kind of coalesced in wanting to do research in the end. Um, <clears throat> in the And, um, yes, that's sort of moved from... Uh, research, being interested in things that involved young people to the experience of men leaving prison. Um, and finally, I've ended up, yes, at Melbourne University um, as a lecturer and researcher in criminology with a focus on, most of my research is focused on prison and post-prison um, experience and young people's experience of being involved in the justice system in all sorts of ways, <clears throat> whether it's from their own offending or others offending against them or um, or having parents in in the justice system too. So I don't see it as just around youth crime. So I understand that uh, one of the main bits of research that sort of led, led you into what you're doing now was conducted mm. in Wales. Yes, I did. Uh, so I finished my PhD at Melbourne University in 2013 and uh, then in 20, well, 2014 I graduated. 2015 I took my family and we went to live in Wales for a year to do postdoctoral research and I was involved in a project there for the Youth Justice Board looking at a group of children that had been identified as prolific in their offending. So these were kids who were really the the um, the difficult end of the youth justice so is that spectrum. how is that how <coughs> they are known in in the UK prolific prolific because here we know them as high recidivists or something like that no? yes that's the prolific same, is the much same better group. you know it sounds a lot better <laughs> I know I thought it was I'm a strange. very prolific <laughs> I'm very prolific I produce a lot <laughs> yes that's the term prolific and persistent offending is the okay. term used in the UK which I found interesting well they they are very positive qualities no if if I say them <laughs> yes, prolific and persistent yes. <laughs> and certainly that was a badge worn by many of the young people in that category. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a really small group of kids. Yeah. Um, at that time, it was around 4%. So these, this was a group that was identified earlier in 2009-10, and then I came in 2015 to look at that group, that um, group that had been earlier identified to find out what had happened to them and what had changed and happened um, through that six years in their lives. <clears throat> so it was a group of around 100 that I looked at, of, of around 300 that were originally identified. And Diana, I guess perhaps it's relevant to talk a little bit about what we know is a bit of a, a general trend almost worldwide, which is crime is in many countries, not not mm. everywhere, but in mm. many Western countries mm. or, you know, industrialized countries or wh whichever mm. way you want to put it. Mm. Um, crime rates are going down. Yes. Um, in, particularly, in particular, youth crime rates are going down. However, what we know is that there is that group of prolific 
yes. recidivist <laughs> offenders who, you know, for them, things necessarily don't get better. That's right. So the numbers of children coming into contact with the justice system for the first time, they call them first-time entrants in the UK. Here we just call them young people <laughs> coming to the justice system. <laughs> They're shrinking. They've been shrinking um, steadily for over a decade and that we see that in Victorian crime rates. We see it in the UK and the US um, and other countries. <clears throat> so that has um, an interesting effect in that the kids who are really the serious ones who are have very complex needs driving their offending, um, they have stayed in the system. So the proportion of those children who are offending at um, who are reoffending and whose offending is quite serious and often increasing, escalating in seriousness as they get older, um, that group looks bigger when the cohort shrinks. So proportionately, the, the, the numbers remain pretty much the same, but the proportion is, um, is growing. So what that does is highlight, um, A, that we do some things really well in the justice system. So we, we, can, we can divert most young people out of the system quite well. Um, and the reality is that most young people who come into the justice system do so once or twice. A small proportion maybe offend up to three times. Um, but most of most young people grow out of crime. So for most young people, it's not a matter of needing a heavy punishment or heavy punitive response. It's about doing things that can guide them on their way towards, you know, living a, a life away from crime that they would ordinarily, uh, normally, on their normal trajectory. Um, but the other thing that it highlights, this, this, you know, shrinking of the cohort and this disproportionate um, large number of kids who are difficult to divert is that we're not that good at dealing with those children um, with our usual justice mechanisms. So um, diversion doesn't necessarily work because you need um, strong social support, a strong social support network and strong service support to divert those kids into. And for those children who are caught in the system because of their increasing violence and because of, um, you know, this reoffending cycle that they get caught in it's not that simple their their needs are, are very complicated so then i i guess i want to go into that research that you did in wales but before that i also want to provide a tiny bit more context for people who are listening to us and perhaps they don't know a huge amount about this space mm -hmm. um and i guess what i wanted to talk about is also the fact that we know now that for a lot of those prolific persistent mm. young people yeah um Trauma is a big factor. Yes. Um, so as a result of that, we know that many of them would be incredibly pre predisposed mm. to uh, those sort of uh, violent or mm. aggressive behaviors that sometimes get them in, into mm. jail. And, mm. and I guess the way I look at it, certainly um, society has a responsibility and a role mm. to play because mm. quite often we have placed them in, in circumstances that basically lead them to offend and there's almost no no choice for them. Yes, yeah. That old expression, no voice, no choice, I always think is so powerful and, and um, helps us understand the that predicament that many children are born into, a sort of a sense of inevi inevitable um, trouble. And... Um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> no, well, well, that was just a bit of context for yeah, our listeners. So yes, now... Yeah. Now I guess what uh, I'd love to do is to understand a little bit what you found with those 
sort of hundred or so young people in yeah, Wales. Yes, so these children were characterised by the kind of things that you've talked about, the, um, you know, the experience of trauma, experience of family violence, um, often family breakdown with many um, young men in particular because they, it was around, around 90% of that group were, were boys, which is fairly standard um, in youth justice figures. Um, for a lot of those boys, they were growing up without fathers and in often in um, having experienced family violence so that their, their mothers, um, sometimes their relationship with their mothers was shaped by that experience of violence. So they had a sort of, some of them had this dominating kind of relationship with their mothers. So they were reproducing patterns that they'd, that they'd witnessed and experienced. There were higher numbers of children um, with child protection involvement. So having been either removed from their parents or family, um, several times sometimes or having just been um, noti- you know subject to notification of family of children's services um, high levels of dropping out of school school uh, either um, through having been suspended or excluded uh, expelled but also just having unmet needs so sometimes um, intellectual and learning needs that weren't met by schools and that manifest in behaviours that were that, diff- that schools found difficult to deal with so the school would react to the behaviour rather than the learning need underneath. So they were going through the system, falling through the system of the, edu- of the cracks of the education system. Um, and often it was about um, they would find themselves hanging with older kids and then getting involved in drug use. And these were the patterns that we saw very often. It was a very, it was a wide group. So this prolific group, another thing about prolific offending, that lovely term, <laughs> that seems to describe something. It doesn't actually describe one thing. It describes lots of different things. So it, it can describe kids who are in these sort of situations that I've just described who are just constantly getting into trouble <clears throat> and constantly... Um, uh, just pushing boundaries and and um, committing low level, really low level offending, such as property offences, breaking into sheds and and damaging property and and low level theft, um, or just being annoying to people, um, and that just persisting in that over over a long period, or other children who would move from start with that and then quickly escalate their offending because if they got involved in drug use, um, so one of the things I found which was interesting and different from anything we experience here, but the same in many ways, was the drug use. At that time, Valium, street Valium, was the drug of choice. So here we might say ice is a, is mm. a problematic um, substance for our young people in Victoria. Um, in the UK, at, in the mid-2000s, Valium, street Valium, was prolific, was everywhere, <laughs> accessible, easy to get, and um, where I thought that if you took you know, 20 Valium, you'd be unconscious on the floor. It actually had the opposite effect. It made kids very suggestible and um, and just a bit out of control and easily um, provoked into violence. And the frightening thing about it being that they had no recollection when they woke up the next day. <clears throat> so these kids were getting involved in these cycles of, offend- of, of drug use that were escalating their violence. Um, other kids were just were prolific for bursts when they were just going through terrible patches in their lives, when mum or dad went to jail, for example, or when they went into care and then came back again. Once they found stability, they'd settled down. So this prolific offending group was very diverse and different. So because of the different causes and drivers that, um, that led them into these different patterns, um, there was not one way 
of responding to them. So it highlighted that there wasn't a sort of a blanket approach that we take. The, it highlighted the need, this research really showed the need to understand why young people were behaving in a particular way and that their behaviour was always um, expressing some underlying cause, some underlying issue that was going on. And unless we understand what that issue is and what the child's circumstances are really deeply, um, then there's nothing you can do to interrupt that offending because normal, you know, just sort of traditional punitive responses have no effect. Um, Locking kids up in jail, for example, in in youth custody... Um, and I interviewed some of the young men now in their early 20s and they said, oh, it was great fun. All our mates were in there. There was no deterrent whatsoever. So when we think we have a strong sense that jail is the answer when kids are getting really harm, you know, harmful behaviour, exhibiting really harmful behaviours and getting becoming really violent, um, that that will somehow protect us as a community when in fact it has the opposite effect. It cements that, um, that offending identity yeah, it's and almost like a criminal training warehouse or something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they go in and come out learning how to fight better, yes. Mm. So, um, yeah, these are the kind of lessons that, um, that came out of that research, the sort of, that the sort of work that is effective is spending time um, to get to know these children and the, the most important thing is, to, is first of all to recognise that they are children. That's the... The most important thing about youth justice is that we're dealing with children and youth, not adults. And why we have a separate system for youth justice is that um, children are developing and growing and and pushing boundaries and learning. And um, because they're malleable, we can work with them. They're much more easy to um, and open to change. Um, and because of their different developmental stages, we can plug into that. Yeah, this morning uh, on a, on Mad Village, we're talking to Diana Jones, Dr. Diana Jones, who is a researcher at Melbourne University and specializing in in um, uh, criminology. My God, I'm <laughs> running out of words <laughs> here. So um, we're going to listen to our second track, chosen by Diana, Diana as well. Um, this is some Odette. Watch me read you the turning pages of an ages of my life reduced to ash and overnight I find my body is not mine. Jeez, that's pretty deep for a young girl. That's eh? what I thought, yeah. Mm. She's only 20 now, I think, and she wrote that song, I think she was 17. So my children got me onto this wow. track. She's just released it about six months ago. I think her debut album's about to come out. So her name is Odette, and the track mm. was called Watch Me Read You. Mm. Great. Great mm. great choices so far, Diane. Mm-hmm. I have high expectations for <laughs> the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, we were talking about your research with young people in Wales. Yes. Um I think obviously a lot of uh, things that you have mentioned re- resonate heavily with the work that I do um, at Banksy Gardens in Broadmeadows. And mm. I think um, the complexity of the needs um, mm. is something that really strikes. Mm. And also, I guess, the, the influence of family violence mm. on, on this. So we just see it left, right and center. Mm. Um, and it's, I mean, I guess from my point of view, I remember when I first started working there, that you would see kids who were in prep or grade one mm. and 
their incredibly sophisticated swearing. I mean, mm. uh, and their even it wasn't just the swearing; it was also the facial expressions and the body language and all of mm. that. And you would mm. think, obviously, you must have got mm. this fr from mm. somewhere, and mm. and it cannot be underestimated. And and then, uh, of course, w what we know now from looking at all the research is mm. that you know the neurologists and neurophysiologists are saying mm. this actually has um, a physical effect on the brain. Yes. And it significantly affects your ability to regulate, mm. to uh, build relationships, mm. to, you know, your executive function. Mm. Um, and as a result of that, you know, kids are unable to learn. And mm. I guess that also relates to what you were saying about schools and exclusion mm. from schools. Because mm. imagine so how some of these kids would be uh, facing school mm. and I think for a lot of them you know the exclusion starts almost in prep when they mm. tell them oh you can't swear here well mm. Mm. sorry 50% of my vocabulary is gone now and, yes. <laughs> right. and then you know, know and then sort of you get a bit blacklisted and then mm. miss mm. days of school anyway so that's mm. really interesting mm. um, can I ask you in, in your experience in Wales um, how did you think the system responded to all of that mm. so the period over which the research was focused so 2009-10 and then I was looking um, backwards from 2015 marked a quite a significant change in understandings about how to work with young people so there was increasingly a, an awareness of um, the influence or the effects of trauma or adverse childhood experiences on children and the way in which behaviour um, was it was an expression of those experiences um, and also a sense that children um, there, there was a move away previously early on there was a um, really thinking a dominant thinking about children as risky coming into the, everything was about risk and so youth justice work was about assessing risk the risk of a young person's likelihood of offending further trying to manage that risk trying to measure it and manage it. Um, and there was very little understanding that as well as being risky, a child could also be vulnerable. So over that period, there was this shift towards that understanding that um, children were vulnerable as well as risky. And you had to meet, you had to understand that vulnerability, um, and under, which was about the experience of trauma and violence, as we've talked about. I mean, it, it's quite striking that it takes so long to understand some of these things because I looking know. at the crime statistics and who gets locked up. Yes. Uh, you know, we know people with disabilities are overrepresented. People yeah. who haven't completed the schooling are overrepresented. People mm. who have been victims, are, you know. Mm. Anyway. Exactly. Yes. What some there was one case that really struck me. This wasn't. I, I wanted to interview this young man, but I. Uh, it was very difficult for me to follow up six years later to find any of the young people from the original study. Wow. I did manage to interview four young men. But um, one case that really struck me was um, a boy so whose story I, I did a really deep case study of. And he had grown up um, with a... I can't actually remember what happened to his father, if he was alive or dead. He was a very violent man, though, um, and wasn't in his life. His mother was quite severely unwell, meant, had suffered from severe mental illness and various forms of um, drug and, and substance um, dependency. His sister was a heroin addict. Um, he had a grandmother who was fairly supportive but didn't really provide boundaries, just gave him money or food as he needed it and bought him, you know, 
video games and things like that. So he grew up with a mother who was um, quite unable to care for him. And he was, when you talked about exclusion from primary school, he was excluded from nursery school, kindergarten, with our kindergarten here. Um, and this boy, you just as I went through his story and mapped his kind of um, his story through the youth justice records, all the narrative, all the storyline was about him being a risky young man, and all his offending um, was seemed really, really bad and really dangerous. And then when I spoke to people who'd worked with him, a slightly different picture started to come out. Somebody told me it's almost like we create monsters on paper by writing down this story of everything terrible this kid's ever done and how risky he is. It suddenly becomes his responsibility rather than all the social circumstances and the fact that his mother was unable to really care for him, the fact that his father was firstly violent and then absent. And his mother had a constant line of... Um, of pretty violent partners as well. Her current partner was, um, over many years, was a serious sexual and violent offender himself. <clears throat> so everything was going terribly wrong in this kid's life, yet this storyline was, you know, he was the monster. And as well, he had this very sort of threatening um, persona that he tried to convey. Um, he was a small boy, but apparently he'd walk with this big swagger like a gangster <laughs> yeah. and he'd come in with bandanas I know a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> And then he got into this thing and he was obsessed with the movie Scarface and he would start to cut his face and he asked other kids to cut his face as well so that he would put out this image, project this image of being, you know, a crazy, violent um, person when in fact he was a deeply angst-ridden, um, troubled boy. People who got to know him, workers who knew him well, spoke about him as not intimidating, not fright frightening, but actually very frightened and some of the offending that um, he was charged with one was um, uh, holding his mother hostage and another one was um, setting his mother on fire so those are pretty serious offenses when you looked at actually what had happened though in one instance his mother um, he was so freaked out by his mother uh, his mother being quite unwell um, he was so worried and anxious that he had locked her in the house and then climbed out a window to, to for himself to leave. So from his side, he was keeping her safe, mm. but the police saw that as holding her hostage, so he was charged with that. The other thing, he threw a lit candle at her, which again was, was pretty terrifying, you know, and was construed as a very serious assault. But just in terms of understanding the context of this boy's life, suddenly these offending, these serious offences didn't seem actually the work of a violent, evil, young, you know, thug. They were, they seemed much more the, the actions of a deeply concerned and deeply disturbed young man. Um, and it wasn't because of the, when you asked me about the, the system, the way we respond, um, he... In many ways, the workers told a story of systems colluding with his mother and colluding with the systems that were pushing him into this um, kind of offending identity so that he ended up in prison at 15 or 16 um, and then ended up, by 19, he was serving a very long sentence for a serious assault. But you saw that by following his story, you just could see there were so many opportunities where some positive intervention could have taken place. Somebody could have stepped in in a positive way and maybe removed him from that um, from that family environment. Um, because when he did go into into foster care and into secure welfare once or twice, he was really um, he he was very stable and did really well. And 
focus he was he could learn and he focused on his schoolwork and it was when he went back to his mother that it, that things fell apart so it was just an interesting <laughs> example yeah. and that's i mean that's one of the things that the science tells us as well is that at this age because of uh, brain plasticity and all of those things mm. young people can make radical Mm. changes and mm. comebacks and mm. recover incredibly well mm. um, and what they need is not that complex no that's right it's just time and sticking with them and persistence i was going to ask you first of all about your research methodology because you did say that you interviewed some young people but mm. I, i wanted to know what what sort of things you did to understand this group of about a hundred offenders mm. so i went um back through the case files of 103 young people across eight uh, youth offending teams. So I travelled around Wales and spent time in each of these um, youth offending teams, which is which are kind of youth justice centres where um, it's they have mental health and housing and education workers and police all operate all working together. So it's a partnership approach to understanding young people and also trying to you know prevent young people before they come into the justice system. Um, So I went around, and that was quite laborious, going through com old computer systems, going th physically through um, through the files, and also going through archives, boxes, cardboard mm -hmm. boxes of paper files for some of them as well. Um, I looked at, so I, I sort of traced, I, I did that analysis, <clears throat> and then I looked at reoffending data because those files were only available up to the child turned 18 and then they went on to, if they kept reoffending, they went into the adult system. So I collected um, reoffending data from the police to see the extent of their reoffending post, post um, leaving the youth justice system. And I interviewed youth justice workers and yacht managers. So yacht is the youth offending team. <laughs> yacht, not, not yacht as in sailing boat, Y-O-T, yacht. Um, and then, as I said, managed to interview some of the young men themselves, four, three, four, four young men now in their early 20s, one in custody and three in the community, who'd all served time in custody, but the three who were not in um, jail had all managed to stay out of trouble for about two years. And these were... And the other one was in prison, but um, he also started to move away from offending. He, he sort of seemed like he was on a on a downward offending um, trend, and he would he was going to move away too. But these were boys; these four boys had all grown up together in the same area, and they were really serious, really, really serious in their offending. They'd all started out fairly low level. They'd all fallen out of through the cracks of the education system, as we described before, and they all had histories of family violence um, and absent fathers and they all hung out and started getting involved in this serious street violence. What what did you learn about the role of sort of peer pressure and group dynamics? It was everything. It was, it was their identity. So where they felt completely excluded, um, Abandoned by families often, abandoned by, let down by schools, let down by other services that would often refuse to take them because of their behaviour. Um, and because they were in a fairly small, this particular group were in a fa fairly small um, local community, they were known, everyone knew them so they were, and everybody was terrified of them. They were demonised by the community. So they were, they were really just shunned on every level. Um, and yet together they found 
a sense of solidarity as well as competition. There wasn't, it wasn't just, they weren't all, to some extent um, they talked about some of them were blood brothers, you know, they had this really strong connection with each other. Um, but in other ways they would they would egg each other on and compete and one would go to prison for something and the other one would have to go and do something worse so he'd get into prison and they'd they'd do something not so serious but then they'd play up in court in front of the magistrate just so they'd be you know sentenced to something a, a more serious <laughs> outcome so it was this you know escalation by mm. um, by trying to outdo each other that was fueled in part by this sort of you know it was just became this self-perpetuating cycle the more they offended the more they were shunned the more they were excluded the more they stuck together you know one one of our experiences and at, at work is these young people are always wonderful one by on, one on one mm. you know they're just mm. invariably mm. adorable and mm. warm and mm. insightful and all of these things and then mm. sometimes you know you get four of these or five of these kids together, mm. and it's mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's certainly what these um, what the workers in this particular um, mm. setting for those particular group that particular group spoke of. They were they were little rat bags, but they were all they were endearing, and they they because they got to know them so well, they um, they really liked them all. The other reflection from everything that you have talked about is that. I guess contrast bet- between all the messages that we're trying to convey uh, through our through the system, you know, education mm-hmm. and all the w- workers that these young people are connected with, and we mm-hmm. talk about the need for I don't know peace and dialogue and uh, mm-hmm. and then the hostility of their environment, where mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. they actually did that, they would be harmed. Mm-hmm. So they have to learn to do exactly the opposite. Yes, uh, t- with their with their immediate environment, and yes. then they have to learn somehow yes. that when they move out of that. They have to yeah. be peaceful and cooperative yes. and all of that. I mean, how? Yes, it's just such a crazy mixed message that for children particularly, isn't it? And that, those boys that I was just talking about that I interviewed all talked of that, all spoke of that, that they had to survive, that um, they were being, you know, when they were kind of, you know, they'd end up sort of on the outer of the mainstream community and then they'd be also being picked on by these bigger boys who were sort of all already doing the bad stuff and so they'd have to get together and and um try and be worse than they were to to survive um yeah it's a it's crazy yeah it's very sad um let's play a sponsorship break and then a bit more music okay Northwest FM broadcasts programs in many languages, including Arabic, Hindi, Italian, Samoan, and Maltese. If you or your friends speak any of these languages, ask them to tune in and have a listen. You'll find all our ethnic programs and broadcast times listed on our website, northwestfm.org. Tune in to 98.9 Northwest FM, Thursdays. I love Thursdays because that's my day program and that's World of Music program from 12 to 2 with Carmelina. I think we make a good team, Carmelina. 12 to 2. Thursdays. Only on 98.9 Northwest FM.
Oh, you know, we're just chit-chatting here. We almost mm-hmm. co- were caught off guard. <laughs> um, so, How to Make Gravy by Paul Kelly. And Diana, why did you choose that? I chose that because it's um, a song I play every year, <laughs> especially around Christmas time, thinking about people in prison, thinking about that sense of loss and separation from family. And also that um, through my research with men in and coming out of prison, that... Um, desire to be different and to be to make everything good um, and then the realization for so many when you get out that it's just so difficult well I remember I want to direct our listeners to uh, what I think is an amazing book and the title is crime and punishment but I'm not talking about Fedor Dostoevsky I'm talking about <laughs> Russell Marx he wrote a book called crime and punishment And it talks a lot about these issues that we were talking about, not just about young people, but but uh, people in general and the the justice system and and how you know a lot of people in there are very vulnerable and also how um, our current responses are actually not making us any safer. And it's it's a great read. Mm. All right, I must read it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we had him on the show. Um, just a couple of years ago when it used to be called environmentality yes. so that was a great pleasure um all right so um let's talk a little bit about your current research in in mm-hmm. melbourne and mm-hmm. what you're doing so i'm currently <coughs> excuse me um involved in a project with colleagues at monash university and the center for multicultural youth cmy in carlton and um We're looking at the experience um, among South Sudanese communities, the experience of young people <coughs> particularly, um, of media and political narratives that have really proliferated um, and gone a bit crazy since mm. Mumba six, 2016 particularly. We saw that as a real sort of triggering event for um, when that event was described as a riot and and it was associated with apex gang and and then um since that time over the summer in particular we saw the whole um african gangs yes and, and at the risk of doing too much self-promotion but we, our first mad village show uh, we interviewed maker mayek yes and he was great so yes. we talked a little bit about the african gangs yeah. yes and as one of the instigators of the hashtag yeah um african gangs on twitter he and his i think it's natalia is it his The other person. Niadol, Niadol, I think. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <coughs> um, did wonderful work in countering that narrative by promoting just ordinary, um, everyday lives of, of so many African background um, and African Victorian people um, doing wonderful things. But we, so our research is looking at the, um, And finding, we've been conducting focus groups with young people, peer-led focus groups, so um, led by young African background people themselves, a young South Sudanese young woman um, and another young man. And um, they've been the young people have been talking about just some the strongest themes of, firstly, the experience of everyday racism um, in schools, in shopping centres, on the streets, in public on public transport. That has been fueled and amplified by these media mm. um, stories and media constructions and and um, kind of myths about apex. You know, young people have talked about having been stopped in the street or even spat on and said, "Oh, you apex. You know, you're black. You must mm. be apex." Um, and that everyday racism feeds into um, the way in which teachers and schools treat 
kids as well. So the the real problems where kids are either um, expected to perform poorly um, or assumed to be problematic. One um, it makes me think of, uh, have you le- read The Hate Race by Maxine Beniba Clark? No. Yeah, so she's an, an Australian writer yeah. um, whose family originally came from Africa. Okay, I think yeah. they uh, come from the West Indies and yeah. they lived in the UK. Then they moved to Australia. Mm. In you know, I think she was born sometime in the 1980s. Mm. And she just wrote a book, which is just her experience growing up in, mm. in Australia and mm. uh, just that, that everyday experience mm. of racism. Mm. And I mean, some of the horrible things that she had to go through every day and that... We wouldn't consider them that important, you know, but they're just incredibly undermining. Mm. Yeah, Undermining. And the fact that um, the the actions of a small group of um, young men predominantly that were associated with, the, you know, the spike in, in um, serious crimes, aggravated burglaries mm. and home invasions and mm. carjackings um, that were, you know, there were a lot of South Sudanese young people involved in those offences as well as a whole lot of other young people as mm. well, um, you know, white kids and, and um, Islander kids and Italian-Australian kids, all sorts of nationalities. But um, because every every group has bad eggs, has rat bags. <laughs> so the, the, the actions of those, of that small group, um, has led to the, you know... Um, Demonization of the whole, yeah, yeah, tarring, and also the fact that (coughs) there are lots of people in in very powerful positions who have decided to Mm. to do this uh, negative advocacy, and I'm thinking Mm. of you know Mm. Peter Dutton, for example, as the as the worst example of that, Mm. and and he only seems to have compassion for white Mm. South African farmers. Yes, Uh. a shameful. Actually, the, you know, you know, on this show, when Carol is here, we we generally have a little section, so where we choose the the village idiot of the week. Yes. And because Carol is not here, I'm just gonna officially make Peter Dutton <laughs> our village idiot of the week. The week <laughs> every week of this year. <laughs> yes, I'd agree. Um, yes, yeah, so that's the work that we're doing at the moment is uncovering um, these themes that have that are coming out all the time this isn't new stuff that we've discovered but it's i think it's important to do this research to make it sort of you know to put it on the record uh the next stage of that research will be to talk to parents and guardians to find out their perspectives and also to gather a bit of an intergenerational um angle and from the themes that come out of that research we hope to do a larger study focusing on um some of the settlement issues around um the yeah around people coming from African countries and settling in Australia and whether they are similar or different to other other groups who've come because we've drawn parallels between, say, in the 70s, the Indo-Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodian people coming prior to that, you know, Italian, Greek um, people coming in the 50s and 60s and the young people experiencing similar things. But it seems there's something about the visible difference of young African people that's well, making exactly. it particularly, I think particularly so. bad and mm. particularly difficult to combat. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, I think it's also <laughs> the same thing applies for Muslim. And, and I think a lot of Muslim yes. women, yeah. they cop incredible uh, abuse just because yeah. they are visible. And Bec- yes. 
you know, it always makes me think of Pauline Hanson as well. You know, when mm. I first came to Australia, mm. this was years and years ago, mm. uh, she just kept going about the Asian invasion. Mm. And now has that has completely dropped off the radar. Off, exactly. <laughs> yes. Anyway. The next target, yes. Now, I also understand that you have a, a pretty big event, important event coming up. I do. On uh, next month, on April the 11th at Melbourne University, we're holding a, a public conversation, which will be... Um, a really important um, discussion about what we hope to achieve by locking up our kids. So that's the name of the event, Locking Up Our Kids, What Do We Hope to Achieve? It features four experts, um, one academic, um, Professor Nathan Hughes from the UK, whose work is focuses on neurodevelopment and, and a cognitive disability amongst young people involved in the justice system. And we know they are overrepresented, as we've as we've mentioned before, as they are in adult populations too in prison. Um, so an academic, a an advocate. So we have Wayne Muir, the CEO of Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, a practitioner. So we have Anne Hooker, who runs the youth unit at Port Phillip Prison, coming, and somebody with lived experience, Roger Antoki, His name is who's a young man who does who's now in his thirties, but um, has lived experience of having been imprisoned as a, as a teenager and young person himself and now um, works to promote employment opportunities for young people coming out of various forms of disadvantage, including the justice system. Well, it sounds awesome. And Diana, I want to thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. And thank you for making the time. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to chat. Uh, no worries. <laughs> and we're going to leave our listeners with our last track. Uh, tell us a little bit about this. I love this album. This is one of, if I think of albums and music that um, stays with me, this over the last decade, this album by Boniver, their first, his first album, Justin Vernon is the guy's name, Boniver is the project, and this was the first album he released. It was um, written in a shed in the woods where he was isolating himself after a breakdown of a deep love affair, um, and it just speaks to solitude and beauty coming out of pain and I just love it it's a beautiful album I recommend it skinny love was a track that was that got a lot of airplay and is probably familiar to many many people but um the whole album is beautiful this one's called restacks well there you go from a shed uh to another shed which is the one where we broadcast from in Hatfield so we'll see you all next not next week the following week because next week is a public holiday thank you very much thank you Mm -hmm.